Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Antony Rossi. In this, our second year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. Hi, folks, and welcome back to Strength to Be Human. This is your host, poet and playwright, Mark Anthony Rossi. Now, the episode I've been waiting for for quite some time, but it took a while really to put together. I don't normally do a great amount of research when I do a lot of these shows, unless it's on particular authors where I need to refresh or, or just really check out a couple of things that I, I want to talk about or quote. Many times these subjects, even though I outline them, you know, they're, they're from my heart and, and mind and even experience about certain things or possibly just my opinion formed in a, you know, 60 minute uh, broadcast. But in this particular uh, situation, you know, it's it's a lot more sensitive and it needs to be broken down in a much more careful way than I normally have to do things. But I think it's necessary and I think you'll, you'll see why it, it, it's necessary to do so. All right. This show is the relationship between creativity and mental illness. Episode 142. I think you can tell from the straightforward title that you can see why I need to do that. So I'm going to sort of break it down generally loosely and in a couple of sections like I normally like to do. But in this particular case, you know, I'm going to quote sources and I'll read directly from the uh, the source or the study. And and then when I need to deviate, uh, I'll mention that's what I'm going to do. Uh, there'll be a, a, a section which is more like uh, the first one, which, what's known, what's really known out there about the subject. Then it's more about what's theorized, that'll be the next section, and then the next one will be really what my thoughts are, even though I still might, um, you know, occasionally intervene and say this is my thought or this is my opinion on that, or this is how I interpret that, that sort of thing. You know, it still leaves you, of course, to make your own decision, which you could do on any show, including this one over here. It's never about for me to think for you. I always uh, uh, sponsor and and definitely um, promote people thinking for themselves. I think that makes for a better world and a better society. And I honestly think that makes for a, a much more fruitful and honest relationship that people can have one with one each other if they just simply try to think for themselves rather than just try to copy somebody else and feel that somehow that promotes happiness. You know, I, I never I never heard anybody that that was forced into conformity and somehow they found happiness. People were honest with you. No, they'll tell you that's definitely not the case here. Now, I want you to understand this. I'm always, always, okay, skeptical about studies in general, okay? I don't really like a lot of them, many because, especially in the day and age we live, everything is so tied to politics or various budgets or, or just general money. And oftentimes, lots of studies, they have agendas that are usually not too difficult to discern. And a lot of times, they're disused by one or another side of things, and, and neither one of them are, are very useful. I mean, a perfect example, um, the study that says uh, oil is completely safe for the earth. Well, that sounds all wonderful until you find out that the people financing it are the oil industry. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't really don't have anything actually against fossil fuels. But it doesn't mean that they're truly safe and it doesn't mean that you have to 
uh, you, you just can do whatever you want. You have to operate in, in some safeguards. You should have some environmental awareness or even some preparation for where you're at. So it's possible to do this fossil fuel industry. Look at that lovely uh, thunder out there for this show. <laughs> so it's possible to be in that industry and, and do things in a, in a safer manner. I, I don't know if it's possible to be 100% safe. Nobody's 100% safe. You cross the street and nobody has to obey the light and they can just run you over. So there's no guarantee for any of that, okay? But can it be run a lot safer? Oh, yes, definitely it can. Uh, but to make that blanket ridiculous statement, no, that's crazy. Just like, um, you know, the other statement on, on many of these environmental things. Uh, the world's going to end from pollution. Uh, we're all going to die because we don't have enough food. Um, we're going to freeze in the 1990s because of uh, uh, global or warming or climate change or whatever new word they come up with every other day. Okay? All of these predictions already happened in my lifetime. None of them has happened. And why is that? Because some of them are just fanciful thinking. Some of them are not really scientific. Uh, we learned from the United Nations that uh, oftentimes things can be changed just because of for funding reasons or people can make mathematical mistakes. You know, so when something sounds way too rosy, either on one side or the other, then you, you have to be skeptical. You have to see what kind of agenda is involved in something like that. And you have to you have to wonder, what can I do with this information? So what that relates to this is really simple. I'm very pleasantly surprised and pleased to go through a number of these studies you know, and find people urgently and intelligently and more importantly, ethically, really digging into some of the questions that we're trying to explore on the show without any agenda. Nobody's trying to push pharmaceuticals here. Nobody's trying to say you've got to go into therapy and, and see every psychologist you can. Nobody's saying that you're in danger. And, and no one is saying that, gee, this is such a fun subject to the, you know, to discover and talk about over coffee. It's taken seriously. It's taken in a, in a sensitive manner. They're trying to be as scientific as they possibly can with the understanding that, yes, and we'll start this right now. Um, there is a true connection between creativity and mental illness. OK, we'll, we'll go through that. But yes, there is. There's a lot of things that you need to be able to hear and understand on the show to see what we're talking about and understand, you know, the place in it, maybe for yourself, maybe for myself, maybe for others. But it's not going to be a show to make fun of anyone. It's certainly not going to be a show to make jokes about it all, or certainly not going to be a make a show that's going to be alarmist, like everybody needs to run for a pill or everybody needs to run for cover or don't write that poem or you're going to lose your sanity or something. We're not going to go there because that's, of course, completely silly. And that's not the kind of show that I have or ever want to have. OK, we'll take it seriously. We'll try to break it on down and, and we'll we'll do something that other shows really haven't talked about before other than being fancy and loose. And that's what I like about what we're able to find here on this. And I think people will be very uh, pleased and surprised and, and I hope grateful as I am on some of the things I learned. OK. All right. So let's go on on the first thing here. I like to. And there'll be times when I just read a direct statement because it's, it's, it's written better than I can write it or even say it. And nevertheless, it comes directly from the source. So why not just do that anyway? This is from and this is a this is a statement from the National Institutes of Health. OK. Likewise, results of various studies and anecdotal reports suggest an increased rate of schizophrenia, manic depressive disorder, depression, personality disorder, alcoholism in creative individuals. While it is quite clear that emotional instability is usually detrimental to creativity, it may also be advantageous. 
when I saw that, especially that last part there, it took me definitely for a loop. Because just like you, I might not be under some illusion of the stereotype of mental illness, okay? Because I've dealt with it before, uh, personally on a post-stress situation. And I've dealt with it with my mother growing up. And, and someone just like the black swan, and you realize later on, if you ever watched that movie, it's a true story, by the way, that the person is not acting like a diva because they're a brilliant ballet person and just wanting to get their own way and being spoiled. No, they're, they're slowly slipping into mental illness, and it's just not so apparent to people. They just think it's something else. Sort of similar like what, what happened with uh, with my mother. And... Um, Thankfully, later on in, in her life, when she uh, got it diagnosed and, and got it got it examined, she was able to do more to curtail it and, 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 and let her bring, uh, I think, a, a better uh, sense of uh, control and freedom into her life that she might not have had before. Not to mention it helped us understand what she was going through a lot better and not have to uh, worry uh, that um, even though she was functional as somebody who worked and ironically somebody who worked with other people who were sick, um, that she would not come home one night or, or she would be, you know, at some other place not knowing who she were or, or just yelling or screaming at somebody because of, you know, sometimes you could lose your um, your emotional balance or, or maybe even your temperament could, you know, be altered at times. So we're, of course, very uh, relieved and happy to see that. It just shows what can be done, you know, if you, if you examine it and take it seriously and not go by... Uh, you know, stereotypes or wives' tales or whispers in the corner someplace. You have to just confront it and, and deal with it. And we did, and we were happy to do so, and, and, and so was my mom. Now, I was a little taken back on the whole, it may be advantageous. I mean, what? Because I, when I think about this, I don't think about mental illness can help you in a creativity. And when I say that, I don't mean that you need to go run to find it somehow so you can get more creative. It's just that, when we go through this, you'll find out that there are examples and there are situations where it apparently helps fuel people who are creative already. So it, 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 because uh, what's happening, and we're going to give you some more direct quotes on this, but to put it in some just simple parlance for all of us to understand, in a small area of our brain and, and of, of our mental experience, apparently creativity and mental illness can cohabitate or even occupy that area for a while. And that's the reason why there's such a relationship is because, again, I'm not making some kind of a pun here, but they can draw from that same area, even though creativity and mental illness are not the same things, but they do have that relationship because they draw from that same place. It's it's almost like saying to somebody, um, I'm Jack and you're Jill, but what we have in common is we both drank the water from the well. Other than that, I'm Jack, you're Jill, I'm a man, you're a woman, you know what I mean? I like poetry, you like music, you know, I like Scooby-Doo, you like Marmaduke, you know, you know, etc., etc. So it's really the same thing. They're coming from that common place and drawing from it. And this is the reason why there's such a relationship and we'll understand some of the shadings and some of the other separations as we go along in the show. But it's one of the first things to really understand under the category of what's known. That's what's known right there. Now, I'll read you this unusual list because I'm sure it's much more extensive than this, but it just gives you a real example, okay? All right. 
This is under the title of Emotionally Disturbed, uh, although mentally ill it will, will fit just fine, okay? Artists, writers, poets, composers, scientists, and philosophers, okay? Vincent Van Gogh. Uh, yeah, it's probably a no-brainer on that one, but, you know, he's in there. Uh, uh, Franz Kafka, I wonder about that because some of the things he had to say to me don't really sound that disturbing. If you're saying that you hate your work more than you love writing, I don't find that really to be mentally disturbing. If you're saying that... You know, you have some days where you just don't want to be married or, or, or being in, in a confined relationship. I'm sure plenty of people feel that. I don't think you have to be mentally ill for that. But he did go into other areas in his writing and in his thinking and in his personal letters that I could see what it would qualify him for. And we could talk about that later. Uh, Edward Munch, you know, the guy that did Scream, that, that, that scary uh, painting worth millions and millions of dollars. Seems like it gets stolen like every other year or something. Um one of the creepiest things ever ever been painted, and uh, if you know anything about this man and uh, all the things that he went through in his mind, it's not that too difficult to understand uh, why he would paint that and other things. Ezra Pound um, definitely uh, suffered from various um, forms of depression. Um, sorry, folks, um, I'm not a convinced person that if you're a bigot, or in this case, an anti-Semite, that somehow that's part of your mental illness. Uh, to me, uh, I, I don't care if you're mentally ill or not. If you choose that behavior, because you do choose it, that's what it is. It's a choice. You don't suddenly you know, wake up one day and say, you know, I, I hate all the Jews in the world, and I'm really not too happy about some of the Muslims either. It, it just doesn't work that way, okay? So maybe he became the depressed later on, but he obviously had these traits in him, and he just maybe got more, you know, um, exaggerated with, with his depression. But, you know, anyone who wants to excuse that, well... We, maybe we'll have another show on that, or maybe we could talk on the side here, but I'm not buying it, and I'm not falling for it. I don't suggest you do either. Uh, Delmore uh, Schwartz, uh, William Copper, uh, Ernest Hemingway, which we talked about a number of different times, wind up committing suicide. Uh, one of the, if you want to call it, uh, heroes of, of mental illness and creativity in, in the sense that uh, Hemingway was one of the very few that we had true documented uh, examples of somebody fighting a lifelong problem with depression and literally trying to do every single thing under the sun. Because remember, he was a man of means as well. He had money before he became a writer. He had money afterwards. He, had, he was always wealthy, okay? And he used it to, to his advantage as much as he could. That man did everything he possibly could and still wind up committing suicide. And I don't say this as some kind of a hopeless note. It's still a personal choice on when you do something like that, whether people want to accept that or not. Um, but he's still a hero in the sense that he did everything he could. Possibly he would have had a shorter life if he didn't try everything. All sorts of therapies, all sorts of medications. He's one of the few people to admit to go into electroshock, hoping that would help him. I mean, he did everything. And all you could do is, 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 is hold your head up high to respect something like that. Uh, that they did everything they could. And I, I wish you could have uh, gave him sort of some relief. Maybe for his case, uh, you know, death was the relief. I don't really know. I'm not trying to be a philosopher here. But uh, I know that um, he, he fought that fight uh, his entire life. And, and, and God bless him. Uh, Eugene O'Neill, the, the famous playwright. Uh, Charles Darwin. Um, I don't know, some of his theories are a little out there for me. You know, you're going to describe, uh, you know, what you see on the animals to people. Um, I don't know if I go for that, but I understand 
the sort of depression he had. And I also understand that in his particular case, like we'll talk about on this show, it had a unique, being the depression, it had a unique advantage for him. This is where we got that whole advantageous from. Because his depression is and the fact that he, he could thrive in a loneliness type of state and the sort of things that he was doing and the kind of work that he was doing, the sketching, the writing, all of that, going to the islands and all these things that he was doing, well, it worked for him. It wouldn't be for the average person to do that. Hey, man, uh, what are you doing today? I'm going to go plant a henness and then I'm going to go date my girlfriend and then we're going to go check out a movie. Uh, hey, Charles, what are you doing? Uh, I'm going to go to an island for three years away from people. I'm going to eat like crickets and I'm going to write down stuff in the rain and, and, and then draw some things, kind of bury it so it doesn't get damaged in my treasure chest over here. I'll wait for the ship to pick me up and then I'll go over and then publish everything. That was what the guy did. It's not something for everybody to do. It's kind of rough kind of life. It really is to do all that kind of stuff. So I understand greatly how that could have aided him. That sort of... Uh, that, that sort of thinking and that, that sort of outlook. So it, it was actually a, 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 a useful thing for him anyway. Um, uh, Fyodor Dorkovsky, uh, the, the Russian writer, uh, who always had a very dark look on humanity, even though he tended to be right about a lot of things about humanity. But in the end, you know, he was always talking about some of our worst traits and not too many of our better ones. But, you know, he suffered from, a, from that a great deal as well as alcoholism. Robert Lowell, uh, the... Uh, the Poet uh, Sylvia Plath. Um, I think about just about all of the the female famous poets uh, had to deal with this in one one area or another. And of course, there's probably thousands you could put on this list as well, including maybe people you know personally. So it's not a, that unusual. Okay. Now, here's the interesting thing. And this is uh, that came from the uh, by the way the Indian Journal of Psychiatry. So it's nice to be able to put put out some. Uh, some international stuff in here, too. I don't like everything just to be from America all the time. Not that there's anything wrong with the country. It's just that it's nice to have a broader view and what other people are thinking, too. And I'm sure my international listeners like that and agree. And I I don't have too many Indian listeners yet, but I'm working on it. There's a big, big market out there and a lot of people I love to be able to talk to. So tell your friends about me, please, in India, okay? Now, I like the the... The question that it posits at the end of this Indian Journal of Psychiatry uh, short study is, uh, does one need to be sick to be creative? Well, that's an old an old um, line from thinking over the last, I don't know, a couple of hundred years where it was noted in many instances that people who were creative seemed to have suffered something. Something wrong with them almost. And, and so we don't know in some cases, because these are other people who said that about creative people, are they operating on some sort of a stereotype? Are they operating in some kind of religious, maybe or political uh, prejudice? You know, because you, you think about it, you know, you're Galileo and you, you, you're saying that, uh, you know, the world is uh, uh, round and we revolve the sun and all that sort of stuff. And then, you know, people are like, no, you're crazy and you, you're falling out of the church with the church and, you know. You're on the deathbed saying, no, I, I guess you're right. The sun revolves around us and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Even though you're in your, in your journals, in your letters saying, no, I, I, I can't that. That's, that's not right. I found the evidence. So you don't know. But what we do know is this. We know that from directly the creative people themselves, when they've written about this, it makes it pretty clear 
that there tends to be a connection. So even those people that we have to have suspect about some of the comments they make about creative people, they're not all lying. They're not all being prejudiced. They're not all being jerks and mean. They are seeing and, and, and apparently understanding something that is going on, whether we like to admit it or not. Um, one of the ones I find was very interesting was this. Salvador Dali. There is only one difference between a madman and me. I am not mad. That's Salvador Dali, who many believe was one of the few artistic geniuses out there. And he said this in the 1930s, okay? What I find very, very interesting and even deep about that comment is two things. First of all, he is apparently taking on something that's not really a common subject, even in the academic world, in his time zone. Now, don't get me wrong. There wasn't a whole bunch of articles and books written about this in the 1930s. And I doubt anyone was even reading or caring about that, other than the exclusive few. And he would be one of those, of course, because he had access to all of that sort of thing. But I think that in many instances, he had an understanding. Because he said a number of interesting things. I remember one time in the airport, they asked him, uh, Mr. Daly, what do you have to declare? He says, only my genius. <laughs> Wasn't exactly big on the humility, but uh, he definitely was a genius. And he seemed to have understand more than most people who are creative that he himself, being the master of surrealism, if you remember that melting clock and that, that's incredible. I, to this day, I can't believe how, how timeless that is. Again, I'm not trying to make a pun there with the timepiece, but it truly is a timeless piece of work. I could see us having a hamburger on Jupiter one day and looking at that thing and go, my God, that's incredible. 300 years later, that's, that's how that thing is going to last. But it's not hard to understand that he understood that both creativity and mental illness did in some times and in some places occupy the same space for a while. He understood that, and that's why he said that. It was almost like he was saying in that statement, yeah, I'm hanging out with where the mad people are hanging out. I just happen to not be mad. I'm over there doing my thing and I leave. <laughs> Which is really the big difference between somebody that's creative and somebody that's mentally ill. Now, I'm not going to make two groups like that on, on the show because guess what? There are people that are both creative and mentally ill. Okay, So in many instances along this show... You'll notice that I'm really talking about three different groups. The creative people that might go to those areas but are not mentally ill at all. Then those that are creative and mentally ill. And then there are those that are just simply mentally ill. They might have touches of creativity out there, especially on the way they think or maybe even the way they speak about things. But they're necessarily people that are doing creative things in general. So you really have the two groups and that's what we're talking about. He definitely felt that he was in the creative, tapping into that field area and leaving kind of group. Um, no one has ever said that he was mentally ill. In fact, uh, Salvador Dali seems to be probably the one of the most sober <laughs> and straight thinking uh, of the artists that you're going to appear. If you read any of his writings or any of the things he had to say, he seemed to be on the money about a lot of stuff and, and not too much off on things, which is unusual, but that's the case. Of course... If you read any list at all about people who suffered mental illness in a creative, you'll, you'll notice distinctly that his name is just simply never on any of them. It simply doesn't relate to him, and he apparently knew that. You know. Now, if we have a list on artists who had no humility, 
<laughs> or maybe no shame, uh, he, he might be up on that list. Maybe even number one. Possibly, I don't know, he'd have to fight with Picasso, though, and possibly on that, on that role. But uh, Picasso would be another one of those, not on this list, but definitely not one that's going to be uh, shy about anything that he did, understanding that he, too, was a genius. All right, now, let us go on to something here that was uh, another interesting part of what's known, okay? And here it is. This is from Psychiatric Times, okay? From a, um, a professor of uh, the Department of Neurology over in New Mexico, um, his name was Rex Young. No, I don't think there's any relations to Carl Young, but nevertheless, that's his name. Okay? And here is something that he had said that he'd written uh, in, in an article. Creativity is defined as the production of something novel and useful. This dynamic tension between novelty and usefulness likely has important neural correlates that we are attempting to explore with neuroimaging techniques. Now, in many instances, the studies, okay, on, on the relationship between creativity and mental illness went in many different directions because many of them had different ways they were trying to get different results or maybe even the same results, just, just doing something different. Some of them did surveys, uh, uh, massive amounts of ones. Uh, some of them did uh, a, a tracking of people for many, many tiers of years. This guy did something different is that he literally took neural images of people who were already declared mentally ill, of people who were creatively uh, really, really advanced and creative people, and maybe even a, a, a bit of people who were both. He wanted to see if he could see something in these images in the brain to kind of give him an idea of what was going on with just some connections and all that. So that's really unique because you don't really see anybody do that sort of thing before. Okay? And uh, here's some of the interesting things he found, all right? And it, it just never occurred to me. Uh, one of the things he had said in his own study was is that we were using the word genius way too frequently and, and just way too, uh, maybe in a way uh, almost uh, vocabulary-wise, abusively. He felt that from the techniques and from the people he's seen that genius was actually quite rare. What he said was this, genius is achievement at the far margins of human expression, meaning, meaning it could be creative, intellectual, or leadership, there's different forms of genius, okay? You could say that a, a, like a George Patton was a genius, but, you know, he probably couldn't write a poem, you know, to, 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 save, to save the life of him. But uh, intellectually, in terms of leadership, that's, that was a genius, okay? It involves the production of extraordinary accomplishment and creative capacity that is exceedingly novel, and breathtakingly useful. This compassion, excuse me, this capacity is by definition rare in spite of the tendency to sprinkle the term liberally throughout our daily endeavors. All right, and so he's made that pretty clear that he thinks it's pretty rare. Now, besides all of these neural images he's taken and all the studies he's done on this sort of thing, he comes up with an unusual mathematical formula, okay? He believes that genius is so rare that it's only presenting in the public eye or even the private eye by one out of every one million individuals. So he believes that in terms of like right now, based on how many people are on the planet Earth, 
that there's only about maybe 7,000 geniuses operating at the same time out of like almost 6 billion people. Although I think we're closer to 7 billion. It's probably where it comes to the number 7. 6 point something billion. So that's literally what he's saying. Only 7,000 out of almost 7 billion. As you know, there's a big difference between the number 7,000 and the number 7 billion. A lot of zeros in between that. So this is what he's believing is the case. Now I like it because it's pretty, it's pretty darn interesting, okay? Now, I like this also because he's also telling us that in this study that he's finding in the neuroimaging, okay? He is fighting actual differences in brains. He's seeing certain neural pathways that are lit up more than others. Um, we were told already from the examination of what they call the knots in the brain when they took Albert Einstein's brain because it was donated to science. And he's supposed to have had an IQ of over 200. The uh, IQ considered for a genius is, is, is usually around 145. And I think they uh, measured his Einstein's as, as being 212. But they understood from examining the brain, all the various knots in it, and it just seemed like more of his brain was active and operating than the average brain, therefore increasing his intelligence, increasing his, his width inside the brain and the understanding. It's almost like the brain is in itself uh, a universe. And... You only can see more of the universe as the brain is able to expand more. And that's for some people and not for others. Some people believe, and I don't know if there's any proof in any of that, because we hear this from both science and religion, both which I uh, can be skeptical at times with when they talk about these subjects. But both science and religion has, has claimed for, I don't know, a long time now, probably hundreds of years, that they believe there are ways that we could discover how to activate more of that space and so our brain, so therefore we become more aware of the universe and therefore start walking around almost like we're mini gods. Because this has been the concept, both scientifically and, and theologically, that um, God is God because it's a creature that has a, a brain that simply operates uh, in a far wider basis than we can do. And, and we, if we ever want to be like that, we got to figure out how to do that. Don't really know if any of that's true or not. What I do know is this. Part of what being human is, is, is I feel, the love affair with imperfection. How we have to work at things that make us have a work ethic. How we have to discover things that brings us joy and, 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 and almost entertainment. And, and, and how the, the nature of love being a mysterious thing is something that can still grasp onto us and that we can still grasp onto it don't really know if i want to have the brain of god and lose a lot of that because i know so much i see so much does this mean that love is no longer that important because it's just a mysterious weird thing am i better being more efficient and more robotic and to me uh, it just seems like the more you want to expand that sort of thing the, the less human you know, I, I feel that you can become and, and maybe in, in the instance that you stop becoming human and you become something else, you know. So I don't really see um, any, in my opinion, any uh, thrill in the evolution of some cyber person or some cybernetic person or some thrill on being some incredibly 
super keen, wise, spiritual individual. I think it's fun being human. I think uh, it helps us with our art. It helps us with the kind of life that we want to live. And, and people who want to leave this existence, maybe that's what they do when they commit suicide. That's certainly when they do when they just simply die from natural causes or from disease. But the majority of people I've ever known that died, uh, that really wasn't in their cards. That wasn't anything they were wishing for. And they were still willing to plug it out through here, believing that their best hopes and their best uh, joys and their best dreams and all the people and the things that they loved, they were here. They wasn't someplace else. Even though we're told a, a million stories about someplace else is better. And I'm not disputing what people say. I'm not even disputing if that's possible or not. What I am saying is, is that I'm not in a rush to get there. And I really don't think you should be either. Alright, now let's go with what's theorized over here. And uh, this is the ironic thing about what's theorized here is that some of this is supposedly known as well. So it sort of occupies two different things, okay? Alright, and here is the reason why. Alright, next section over here. We're going over to the Swedish study. Uh, the Swedes are the only culture on earth that have done the most extensive individual study on creativity and mental illness of anyone in the world. Now, America and England has done many, many studies over the years, okay? And India is starting to do that now as India becomes much more of a developed nation and much more of, of an incredible educational system. They're doing a lot of great things over there. God bless India. Sweden, on the other hand, they did something different. They took 1.2 million Swedish citizens and put them on a 40-year study, Okay? They wanted to see if there was any connection at all between creativity and mental illness. And their results are pretty interesting and maybe in some instances possibly even contradictory. But nevertheless, this is what they came up with. Okay? All right. And might as well just read it to you. Uh, Samin Kayaga, that's the, uh, the scientist involved in all this, and his colleagues found that with the exception of the bipolar disorder, those in the scientific and artistic occupation were not more likely to suffer from psychiatric disorders. Or full-blown mental illness did not increase with the exception of the bipolar. So for some reason, that seemed to be much more prevalent in those they were studying. 1.2 million, that's a lot, a lot of patients or a lot of things to study, I tell you, people. And for 40 years, so it's... It's pretty, it's pretty uh, uh, extensive. It's hard to ignore this. Uh, again, I'm not going to go with this as gospel like any of the other things. I don't really have to sway or bring you in one place or another. I don't really have a, a dog in this, this pony show or a horse in this race or whatever fun uh, thing you want to use. But it's, it's, an, it's important to note what, what they discovered. Okay, It doesn't mean that what they're discovering really contradicts what other people have discovered. Because again, they are showing a real link. And given real evidence, it's just that they're not seeing as much depression and alcoholism or anything else other than the normal curve of that. So it doesn't mean they don't see those things. They just don't see it enough to strike an attention of it. But the bipolar, they do. It's a, it's a huge jump. So unless uh, uh, the Swedes have a different defin definition of bipolar that maybe includes different things in, in America or other places... This is what they're saying. And they, but they're using that term, and so I'm going to take them seriously on that term. I'm not going to really try to parse it, but 
you know, I still wonder. But, okay, fine. There is a second part of this that is extremely unusual and nothing I would have ever taken into account before on anything that I've ever read in my entire life until doing this show. I've just never seen this before. I'm not even sure what to make of it. And here we go. Okay? It says, what was striking, because, you know, that whole <laughs> statement I just read you and that whole study, uh, 1.2 million Swedes and 40 years of studying by a bunch of scientists, if that's not striking, somehow this is even more striking, okay? And it really is. The siblings of the patients, okay, or their first-degree relatives, okay, were significantly over overrepresented in creative professions now when I saw that I'm like what could that actually mean their theory is that maybe possibly the relatives inherited a watered down version of the mental illness that's conducive to creativity while avoiding the aspects that are debilitating you know like losing your mind or losing reality or drinking a lot and falling off a cliff you know that sort of thing so this is what their speculation is, is that maybe that's the case, that a lot that's going on with folks that already have this bipolar situation, uh, it possibly it could be genetic, and therefore uh, their relatives or even their siblings, could even be a brother or sister, uh, also got that, but they got it in such a lesser degree that it allowed them to tap into that creative mental illness zone we talked about before, but they don't get all the bad side effects like those that are, that are just straight mentally ill. This is what it's saying. Never ever expected to hear that before. It, it's pretty unusual. Uh, but again, this is a, 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 a verified and valid study. And the Swedish people were not playing around with it. I mean, it, it's just uh, incredible to even hear something like that. I mean, I, I just never, never heard about it. Okay. So I wanted to bring that to your attention because I thought that was uh, incredibly uh, unusual. I don't know about any American study that even talks about that particular thing. So this is why I, I find it so unusual is that what could that actually, what that can actually mean? Is there something more genetic going on in terms of uh, relatives in the family? Now I know, and we all probably know, if we looked at anything regarding certain families, the Hemingways are a very good case of, uh, of a man member we talked about who struggled that with his entire life and apparently... There is a real genetic connection there with the Hemingways. Apparently, they have some kind of genetic, I don't know, uh, mental illness disorder or something in them because a great deal of that family over the last hundred years have suffered from that. Even the ones that come into the 1980s and beyond continue to have to battle with that. It seems, this seems to be part of their genetic makeup, that particular family. Uh, so they all wind up being very creative people and they all wind up having all kinds of serious issues with uh, mental illness and suicide is sadly to say uh, pretty rampant either successful or unsuccessful but the act of suicide just seems to be common with that family unfortunately you know you gotta hope and pray for people like that but apparently they're dealing with something uh, on the genetic level and I think that's what the Swedes are trying to, uh, to, to look at and see and, and maybe even you know, theorize about. So that's why this is part of the theorizing part of the show. That's what their theory is. But nevertheless, this is what it came up with. Now, I find it unusual that psychology today, okay, says that, and this is a quote from them, it cannot be denied 
which is a pretty strong, solid statement, that a number of well-known creative people, primarily in the arts, have been mentally ill. And it lists uh, some of the usual ones, a few new ones. Uh, Vincent Van Gogh is there. Virginia Woolf, it's mentioned. Robert Schumann. I think he was a composer. Um, Robert Lowell, poet. And, of course, Sylvia Plath. And, you know, this it can be very large. So they're, they're willing to just mention that. Now, here's what's interesting, okay? Psychiatric diagnosis of eminent people have been derived not only from clinical sources, but from general and popular biologies revealing apparent clay feet of creative heroes, unproven gossip, and hearsay, and a field called pathography, in which both the literary and the psychological analysts describe correlations between artists' psychological constitutions and pathological elements that they see in the subject matter or characters. It's a, it's a nice academic way of saying that oftentimes when studies are done, they might not always be done like the Swedes or some of the, the Indians or some of these other studies that could just be done by looking over their family histories, or looking over their, their correspondence, looking over their writings to see unusual patterns or unusual things, hear from gossip or hear from other people about how they acted in public and stuff. We, we know a lot of, about Edgar Allan Poe because lots of people wrote about him that were in his contact or in his circle. And so we know certain things about how he acted and, 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 and how he went about things uh, because he wasn't one of those people that was all that biographical about things. We know some certain things from his letters, but, you know, if you got somebody pleading for money or pleading to buy his book so you can get money or pleading that, you know, he's trying to shape up his act so that he can go out there and read without being a, a, a drunk. You know, you're not really reading everything about the man's character or everything that he's thinking or going through. You're just reading about some of his more desperate times where other people might not have said anything. And they have to depend on some of these other sources, good, bad, or indifferent, in order to sort of build a picture. So psychology, is trying to, uh, psychology trying to, today is trying to remind us that the picture that can be brought out in some of these things, we're not really sure how exactly scientifically accurate it is. But what I say is, and this is what my opinion is, is that it does help give us a better insight in the particular writer or maybe even the issues of, the, of mental illness and creativity. Because again, you could say all you want, this isn't scientific, but when you get five and six and seven and ten people saying something similar, okay, about a writer, and then they also in that same person's uh, life, a different writer has something similar, you get 10, 20, 30, 50 times this sort of thing, you know, they can call it anecdotal all they want. To me, that's just another word for, I didn't approve it because I'm a scientist. I take some of that stuff seriously because when you think about people saying things about creative folks, especially if they knew them or they were in their orbit or anything, and they're saying this and they're in different cities, they're in different countries, they're in different time zones, they're in different times, 1800s, 1920s, 1980s, whatever. But they're all saying something's different, you know? You have to wonder about what true connections they're seeing over there and what true connection there is between mental illness and creativity. It's hard not to, to draw some inference from that and maybe even take some of that as a basic source. Now, if I'm putting together a scientific study, okay, I'll, I'll include that in there. I don't think anything wrong is in that. You just you can simply use it as backup anecdotal stuff in the study. 
This is what I found from my survey. This is what I found from my genetic testing. This is what I found from my neuroimaging. And this is what I found from simple interviews from people that are around them. Notice how they have some similarities to what's been talked about. It's an additional, uh, I feel, backup of everything. I agree with people that you can't use that as the whole ball of wax. Yeah, seven, seven ladies said he was a weirdo, so he must be strange. I mean, that, that it's not really fair to the person and, and the whole life and the whole body of work to just rely on that. So I agree on that. But it doesn't mean that because, you know, a scientist didn't put his name on it or because some therapist didn't stamp it, you know, with a, this is officially a, a therapeutic document. Well, it doesn't mean it does not have, doesn't have any value. It doesn't mean that it's not useful for anything. It doesn't mean it's worthless because it does still have worth. It does have some insight. You just have to keep it in proper perspective and maybe even in a proper context. This is where this comes from. So, if anything, please consider the source. And I don't mean that in a prerogative way. It's just that's the truth. Consider the source. I got that. I still think it's very useful. I like how uh, Psychology Today brought that into there because they're not really mocking it as much. It's just saying you got to keep that in mind. And I, and I agree on that. Okay. They have another interesting statement, though, and I like this. And, and this is really what I think helps a, a great deal about going on this theory to getting closer to what we need to try to understand. The confused beliefs of purported findings have primarily arisen because creativity and mental illness often involve deviations, sometimes fairly extreme ones, from normative modes of thought. Symptoms of mental illness differ from normal thinking and behavior and creativity because they require special or uncommon capacities. But there are sharp differences in effects, mental illness, compulsions, obsessions, delusions, panic attacks, depression, and personality disorders are not the same as creativity that involves novel and rich results. The common claim that is extreme euphoria and productivities are features of both creative work and bipolar illnesses. With the illness, however, these features are involuntary, devoid of judgment, and distorted where a creative artist's productivity is purposeful and euphoria results almost always from exceptional accomplishment. Suffering is not an intrinsic component of mental illness, but because of traditional romantic beliefs about creative people... Let me go on to the next page over here. Disruption subtly contributes directly to creative inspiration. Suffering may come from all too frequent lack of recognition and its consequences, neither a direct cause nor an effect of mental illness. Now, they give me a list, and this is a different list that we normally hear about, okay? This is the list of people that psychology is saying it's questionable if they really were mentally ill in the first place, but it's commonly believed. But they're questioning if that's the case here, okay? The list of mentally ill creators who are successful should induce hope, but not treatment resistance in suffering patients. Although it's comprised of impressive membership, the list is dwarfed by a very large number of highly creative people in modern times and throughout history on where there is no evidence of uh, any kind of disorder. Um, Milos, uh, Henry Moore, Sigrid Unsuit, uh, James Austin, Antov Chekhov, George Eliot, who, that was a woman by the way, uh, John Milton, uh, Johann Schaposhtin Bach, William Shakespeare, from what we know of him. That's probably true. 
So uh, again, these are people here that people thought might be mentally ill because of the things they wrote about or maybe how they behaved in their life. But when they compared everything we knew about those people to the information we know now about mental illness, they're actually taking these people off the list. They don't believe they were mentally ill at all. Were they a little eccentric? Probably. A bit of strange, yeah. I mean, creative people can be. You know, probably some kind of pains in the butt. Hey, there's a lot of people with pains in the butt. Doesn't mean they're mentally ill, okay? So there's no real relationship there, okay? Because otherwise, you'd be calling me mentally ill every five minutes on the show. Because I could be a pain as well. But hey, I'm from New Jersey, so it's just common. <laughs> now, I like this comment regarding uh, William Shakespeare, okay? All right? Shakespeare probably had uh, problems like other human beings, but here's the rub. Was the author of Hamlet's suicide contemplating Siliquoi depressed as a matter of complex empathy, such as intersecting conditions? They're hardly necessary and probably unlikely. So when you hear what Hamlet had to say, okay, it doesn't mean that you had to have an understanding of depression or even have depression to understand what you're trying to convey with, with Hamlet. I mean, it's just like the writer that writes about drug use. You don't have to actually go out and experiment with drugs. Now I know how drugs react. I could write about it. Okay? This isn't method writing here, people. You don't need to go to that extreme. All right? And it's not necessary. So if you draw some kind of conclusion, sometimes you're going to be wrong. All right? If you think about the Hamlet character, okay? His mother's sleeping with his uncle after his father died in some unusual circumstances. Okay? That, that would make anybody pissed. And maybe even a bit suicidal. Okay? Um, I don't know. Do I call you my uncle or do I call you my stepfather? Uh, do I uh, knight you as a king or do I want to stab you in the heart? You know, are you my mother or are you somebody else off the street? Who are you? Is this my family? What the hell is going on? I mean, who, who, why should you not be disturbed as that character? I mean, that's some really disturbing stuff over there. All right. We got adultery. We got incest. We got murder. Suicide or attempted suicide, ghosts. I mean, I'm telling you. I, I, I often wondered sometimes, if it wasn't for some of the beautiful language, if half the stuff of Shakespeare would ever have been produced or even allowed to be written. Because next to the Bible, Shakespeare is, is really risque. It has some rough stuff in there, some, some serious things. I mean, I mean, when was the last time you read a story that had those kind of elements in it? <laughs> not too many of them. I don't care beautiful British language or not. You just don't see that very often. And uh, I think that it wasn't really hard in the end, in my opinion, for Shakespeare to roll with this because once he put that crazy, uh, you know, and I mean crazy in terms of all these unusual elements into place, uh, it's not too hard to derive what, what a character like that would think about. He would be depressed. He would be suicidal. He would be questioning everything. Question its own identity. Question its family. Question his lineage. Question God. I mean, it's, that's a lot to be questioning, and uh, it's not too hard to kind of go with those questions. I don't think you have to be a genius. I don't think you have to be uh, uh, somebody that knows anything about suicide, and you certainly don't have to be a, a person that, you know, I'm writing this character because my mother also did the same thing. She uh, helped plot my father's death so that she could marry my uncle, and they could have lots of sex. Uh, no, so <laughs> you don't have to do any of that, okay? So I kind of like that. I like that. That was really interesting. I, and that is the uh, the theory of all of this, uh, and there's of course some facts from that, from what they when they derived over there. But you can see as much as they're putting people 
you know, on that list of, of people that are having uh, mental illnesses, you got people that they're taken off because of how um, how ridiculous that that has gotten, and and it's really uh, important to uh, to to note that. Now, my my thoughts, and we'll get into that section of my thoughts on all of this. It's very important to take from the show, okay, that when we delve in the arts, regardless if we already have pre-existing uh, conditions of depression, or even in my case, you know, where it, it, I could possibly be dealing with it on a genetic level one day because of my mother. We have to also keep in mind that we still have lives, we still have goals, we have things we want to do. It's never a good idea to allow things hanging over your head like that's supposed to be a wonderful thing. Well, you know, what happens is, is going to happen. But what you have to keep in mind is that as creative people, we're going to know that we go to these places sometimes. Most people know. They don't want to admit it. They don't want to like, say anything out there. I swear mental illness is still one of the few stigmas that's left in America. You could practically say anything now. But uh, if you mention that, people are like, ugh. So it's still something we have to tackle. And I can understand why somebody doesn't even want to talk about that. Maybe even within themselves, let alone with somebody else. I got that. I try to do more on the show that helps people maybe free themselves up from that. Especially if they have problems that they should try to talk it out with somebody. Somebody they trust or, or maybe just some kind of therapist. Maybe do some writing therapy. Try to work out some things with you yourself. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But there's nothing in any of these studies, okay, good, bad, or indifferent, that suggest that it, it, you know if you continue your creativity, somehow you're going to lapse into mental illness one day. All right. Nor is there anything saying that if you already have some form of mental illness, that being creative somehow just just stops you from ever ever getting a you know, a, a handle on it or, or getting it managed to something because I'm not really sure if there's a cure for mental illness. Maybe one day there will be. Uh, but there are obviously various therapies and treatments and there are obviously various things that you can do to, to help get it more managed so that you can have, you know, the life that you, you, you should have. So I don't think people should ever try to run away from that, you know, and get from the show, oh my God, I wrote this poem, now I'm going to be insane tomorrow. That's not happening and nobody's saying that on the show or in any of these studies, Okay. But what it does say is that we should be aware that there is a relationship. And that awareness is not just some academic thing. It, it should be something deeply personal that we try to, uh, if not visualize in ourselves, at, at least test in ourselves now and then to make sure that we're okay. And if we don't, if we think we have something that's going on, that we try to handle it right away. We try to, you know, get some kind of intervention, that we try to make sure that we do something that will help us so that we don't let it get out of control. Because I feel that more than any times and else, uh, people where it concerns mental illness, they spend too much time in denial. Or they spend too much time trying to run away from it. Or not deal with it. Or don't take it seriously. Those are my favorite people. Mark, I'm not in denial. I just don't take it seriously. Yeah, okay. Sometimes it's difficult to talk with writers because I'm a writer myself. So we can get all semantical and get all technical and we're not driving at the truth, okay? Words are not to disguise the truth, folks. That's politics that does that. Words are about trying to reveal things in our lives or in the world that's going to help us to see things, help us navigate through the universe without smashing into a planet or a star or a mother-in-law or anything else that could be a problem, you know, in your life. 
That's what words are for. They're not to do anything else. And when they, when they do something that's contrary to that, that's when you have to wonder about yourself, about those words, about what people are doing. Because then they're not using them as uplifting vehicles to gain some truth. They're using them as weapons to beat the hell out of you. Or to put you down, or put you in a corner, throw you in a closet, call you a name. That's when it becomes dangerous and it becomes destructive. And you want to try to avoid that. Okay? And I find more times than anything else that people don't want to deal with this. And you need to deal with it. And you need to take it seriously. I've had more success telling people who have cancer, please go get some cancer treatment. Eh, it should be okay. What do you mean it should be okay? You think you have cancer? Go find out. And I've talked to people that found out, eh, I got a couple months before I need the operation. Really? Let's give a, a cancer a couple months to go in there and do some more damage. That sounds like it's so much fun. Get on with it. Don't play games with your time and don't play games with your life. Like I said in the last show, and I mean that on this show as well. I don't know if I have to say it on every show or not, but we don't know how much time we have. We just don't. And, and I feel, especially if you believe in God, you know, I, I believe we tempt God when we're just messing around with our time, thinking we have all of this to spare. Like we, could do, we could do whatever we want. We get a blessing of finding out we have an early diagnosis for something, we sit on it. And I've seen people do that to where I just had to stop nagging them because I, I even got tired. I'm like, I don't know. I can't do any more. I literally tell God, I did all I can do. I can't get the person to go do anything else. What do you want me to do? Huh? Go over to his house and forcibly bring him over to the damn oncologist or something? No, I, I can't. I don't know what I can do. You know? I, I'm not a quitter. I'm not a give up a person. But there's a point where, you know, if, if a person wants to have a position, they want to be private, or they just want to take a different... It's their life. I mean, what can you really do? You, you can't force somebody. That's against, you know, the principles of freedom and liberty anyway. So sometimes people have to live with the choices they make, whether they're going to be destructive or not. I mean, you only could do so much. But where it concerns yourself, yeah, you definitely should be considering that. I've seen way too many of that. And um, I, uh, I, I composed the other show the other day because I had another person I knew that was in the service that, that, that committed suicide. And uh, I can't tell you how... Even from this end of things, you know, how um, debilitating and depressing that is on, on this end. Especially when you've had contact, especially when you've done all the things that you think that you can possibly do on all the levels possible. And this still happens. And you, um, especially when you have more of a personal stake in that versus somebody that just looks it on the sidelines. You know, it's not just... Sympathy or compassion is also a measure of anger as well. Uh, maybe even sometimes at the person. I know that might not sound fair, but I'm human, okay? And sometimes I need to be strength to be human too, okay? Sometimes I don't have that strength, all right? I know on one of those occasions I certainly didn't. What can I say? You know, you, you try to forgive yourself later. You hope God will forgive you. And, you know, but that's the only way sometimes you can express it. It's a combination of anger and, and sympathy. So... Sometimes I need both of those to get this show going or even to talk about some of these things because they're not the easiest things. I don't sit here and shoot this stuff off because it's a lot of fun and I think I'm some kind of like, you know, Buddhist uh, wisdom teacher from the ages or something, okay? I'm just, a, I'm just a regular guy like you folks, a writer, you know, a family guy trying to figure out, uh, you know, the world and, and trying to make my way in it without having to, to lose my hope or my life because you remember... 
that's what happens to those that take their, their own lives. They do this because they've lost that very string they might have had of hope. Once that's gone, there's nothing more to keep them here. And sometimes your effect on them, especially if you see what's going on, could make all the difference in the world. And then sometimes it just can't, especially if you're not always physically around them. I mean, I can't travel around the world or around the country every time somebody has an issue. I wish I had the resources to do that. But quite frankly, I've seen enough of this now in my own lifetime that uh, I don't even know if I had those resources, if that's really going to make a difference. Somebody that um, is ultimately committed to this one way or the other, they're going to find a way to make that happen, unfortunately. I hate to not sound hopeful in a situation that I'm telling you about that can be, for a person, hopeless. But that's the only way to be honest with you. I don't like to couch things. I don't like to use Hallmark. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate the Bible, but sometimes even those reassuring verses, they're not enough. Um, I don't know what is enough, to be honest with you. But I do know is that you hope that... Um, as much as possible, their their family got something from their lives, and they got something from their from their family, and hopefully they they still left here, you know, with something of of a good memory of Earth, even if they felt they they couldn't you know continue with it. On. And if there is another place out there, you know, from anybody who believes in a in a deity, you know, maybe that's a place that uh, they need to be at to to get some rest and and maybe to get some peace finally and. Uh, maybe this that's the next existence for them. I don't know. I, I hope that's the case. I, I like to think that anyway because to not think that, you know, is, you know, of course, it, not only enormously depressing, it, it's also, uh, you know, less than hopeful about, about all of us. But I've also seen plenty, plenty of people that I've, I've experienced with or worked with and, and definitely in my life that um, turned the curve on that to where I'm not even concerned anymore about their their prospects of that subject doesn't mean I take it for granted doesn't mean I still don't check on them and all that but there are plenty of people that refound you know their faith so to speak and their faith in humanity or their faith in themselves or just saw another perspective that gave them uh, another chance uh, at, you know at making it so it's not all it's not all lost in fact more times than not you know, that's still the minority of, of people out there. But, you know, God Almighty, there's just too many still. Uh, especially in, uh, in those that have served in the, in the military. And um, I know in the police forces, that's pretty prevalent. I hear that's a lot in, in firefighters too, which is pretty amazing. But I guess the trauma of all the stuff they go through, that you know, that's not treated. So, And, of course, in the, in the creative arts, where I've known a, a number of people as well. So, folks, let's try to keep that in mind that there is lots of reason to be hopeful and there's lots of reason to be vigilant about all the things that go on in the arts and how wonderful it can be and how creative all of us can be to try to help other people i've known people who are creative who kind of in the doll drum drums and things and, and but they were over there doing something that helps somebody else's spirits so you never know when you're doing something even if it might not make your spirits great it could be helping somebody else and you might hear from people sometimes that that's the case. I try to tell people whenever I see or, or hear something about that, try to drop them the note, remind them about, wow, this is great, this is helpful, this is uplifting. This People need to hear that. And they don't need to hear that in some fake sense of being a cheerleader. They just need to hear that in the sense that, hey, I don't want to carry this privately around. 
about how I'm really moved by what you did and what you said. You know, I, I want you to know about it. I, I want you to know that you had an impact, that you that you reached me, that you made the connection that we always talk about on the show, which is the ultimate goal for any writer is to make that connection to the reader. So I like to share that. I think I think it helps people's mental uh, state. I think it helps us creatively to, to hear people have to say that. And, and, I, and I really think that it's a true waste to have all this incredible technology and all this instantaneous communication and we don't even say the, the best things. More times than not, you know, I read on Facebook and other places sometimes the worst things or the most idiotic things or the most ignorant things or sometimes just the downright untruthful things. And this is what we're using the technology for? It's truly an, an, an offense. It really is that people do that. And let's not do that ourselves. Let's be better than that as creative people, even as, as human beings, as fathers, as friends. Let's be better than that because we can be better than that. We just have to choose to be that. I know we're going to have our days. God knows I have my days too. But sometimes I just want to knock somebody over the head because it's like, how much time do I got to hear this, this nonsense from you? Can you just like wake up once in a while? We're going to be doing other shows here in September, okay? And I just want to read off a few of them with you, let you know some of the things that are coming up, kind of give you a little bit of a slight background on them because I think it'll be uh, interesting to do. I'm back in the swing of getting more of these shows on a, a more um, a timely uh, basis. Had a little bit of a slow period of that with the summertime and vacation and COVID and modifying my house and dealing with virtual schooling and dealing with uh, kids I'm worried about in school and all the other stuff that's going out there. It's just a lot of things I'm not normally used to and I have to juggle all of this and, you know, still be um, a happy husband and, and, and an incredible father, which uh, I'm not always either one of those, okay? But um, I'm damn trying, okay? All right. Uh, and this is just a, like a, a brief schedule for September. It's pretty much what I consider the first half, the first week of one and two, all right? So we got... The first show in September is going to be the art of this podcast behind the broadcast. So I have a number of emails where people ask me about, do you put together the show, you know, um, like you do writing? Is there some differences? Do you consider artistic? What's the, what's the relationship to that? Is it different? There's a whole art to it. They're all interesting and valid questions. And um, I've actually been asked to this for a while, but I've been focusing on some of the other emails for the, for the good and for the bad, to be honest with you. So... It's like time to listen to some of these and do a show about that. So that's what I'm trying to do. Um, hopefully it won't be boring to anybody else that don't have anything to do with the podcast. I'll try to make it as interesting as possible by drawing some of the parallels. Maybe it'll be useful for folks and, and you know, find it, um, you know, enthralling. And maybe some of them will just say, I can't wait for the next episode. Fine. I'm okay with that. I won't be offended. The next episode after that is going to be uh, in, in the Classic Spotlight series. Happy to come back to that. For a while, I took a break from that because I kind of ran out of writers that I truly loved and then went on to uh, now writers that I respect and like and have a lot of interesting things to talk about and say, but they're not exactly in my loved category. And this is going to be on thoughts on Charles Bukowski. In fact, lots of people, when they saw this uh, on the schedule, actually emailed me or dropped me a line. Oh, my God, I can't wait for that, this and that, whatever. So hopefully you'll be pleased. I have a lot of good things to say. I got a lot of things that are not going to be good to say. There's a little bit of there's things in between. So it's going to be a mixed bag of everything about this guy and everything about how we should look at his work, uh, maybe even how the work should look at us, so to speak. So 
I think you'll find it interesting. Uh, I enjoy putting it together. I really do. And I'm glad to get back into the Classic Spotlight series again. All right. Uh, next after that will be the value of writing coaches and courses. So we're going to talk a little bit about what you can get for good and bad from those creative writing courses that you might take at a college or even online. Or what some people do is that they'll hire um, like a writing coach or even a writing consultant to help them. And we'll talk about some of the things that happens in these things. I mean, what can be useful for you? What's not? What I think you should look for? What I think you might want to try to avoid? I have some experience on actually both of these subjects. And as I've gotten older in writing, I, I abandoned doing any of that. I, I have my own reasons, which I'll share with you on the show. But it doesn't mean there's no value in there because that's why I call the value because it really is value. It's not some negative show beating everybody up at doing this. But like anything, you don't want to overstay your welcome. It's kind of like high school, okay? You do four years, you're successful. If you're in high school for five years, that's that's a friggin' problem, okay? <laughs> Same thing with these courses, all right? You, they have a shelf life. Don't exceed it, please. All right, um, next one here. And this is probably going to be the most controversial show that I've ever done and I don't care. I'm, I'm kind of like tired of it at this point. So we're going to talk about it. All right. This is the show, How Evil Words Reduce Civil Behavior. Okay. So we're going to go through a list of a couple of really words that I really think that should be exercised from the human language. Dare say, remove it from the damn dictionary. Because it's just that damn damaging and just un unuseful on every term that you could possibly do. Really. Um, I'm going to end the show with a good part of it on the N word. Yep, I'm actually going there. We're going to talk about the history of it. We're going to talk about all kinds of different forms of it. And you're going to understand one way or the other how not useful that is and how nobody on earth, no matter who you are, what your background is, should be ever using it. So I guess the hate mail will come. Don't care. It's going to be talked about. And the last one for that mid uh, part of September is navigating the world travel in literary writing. So we're going to talk about some of the good and bad of people that use a lot of their world travel in their writing, how that can also be useful as an accent, how that could be a good jumping point, a good pivotal point to help things out. But you can't actually just go about creative writing as a travel writer. And you know, you're sticking in Paris and London and this and that every five minutes. It might impress yourself and maybe get people once in a while to be excited. But after a while, it gets old and boring. So we're going to talk about how to use it sparingly, how to use it wisely, how to use it to be instructive and creative, and how not to overdo it. So that'll be a, that'll be a fun show as well. Because uh, we've all encountered this sort of thing, and it's a, it's a good thing to talk about. Uh, if you ask me what the second uh, half of the month of September is going to look like, I don't really have an idea. I've only outlined this so far. Okay, and, and actually a couple of these have actually been recorded already, believe it or not. So we'll go forward with those. I'm looking forward to it. I think I have a few more later on in September, and that'll wrap that month up. I'm trying to keep a, anywhere from like six to eight shows maybe a month and, and kind of go from there. Although, um, how many is in that one? I mean, let me see. I didn't even count that, funny enough. Uh, one, two, three, four, five. So that one, there's five of them right there. and So I'll probably have at least like one or two more after that. Even though that ends on the 15th of September. So, I mean, theoretically, I could probably do, you know, two or three more of them. So, we'll see uh, on terms of what will be useful and what it won't be uh, useful on it. But, uh, you know, there's always October as well. Okay? And I will be saving October for uh, the sequel to Edgar Allan Poe. Thoughts about it? We'll be doing the second one on it. Exploring more of his other writings and more of his life. We're going to talk more, like I, I mentioned before. We're going to talk more about... 
people's uh, not only gossip of him, but people who wrote the demonstrative letters about him that, that are saved that we have archived so that we know about it. Whether you want to take them seriously or not or believe them or not is one thing, but we know that they're real and this is what was written. And it helps it though. It gives it gives a better, a deeper three-dimensional picture of Edgar Allan Poe other than just the spooky character that looks like he's never happy. He talks about dead people and weird cats and monkeys running around in Paris and you know um, ravens, uh, you know, predicting your death and all that. Uh, there's more to the guy than than we ever realized, and it'll be interesting to talk about that more. And I was able to go uh, in that show. I'm going to be able to go a lot more than I did on the first show. I might do a sequel to someone else as well. We'll see. You know, I don't want to do too many of them because some of them I've said all I need to say. You don't really need to go too much farther. But I, I think with him, um, he's uh, uh, eternally interesting. Okay, no doubt about that. And he always, even when you explain things about him, always seems to be a bit of a mystery. And I don't mean to take some of the mystery away because I'm not. Because some of these things you got to still decide upon whether you take serious or not. So you can still have the mystery just stay in that way by being, uh, you know, an unbeliever. And that's fine. But I, I, I definitely going to enjoy doing that. And I think you're going to enjoy that as well. All right, folks. God bless. Until next time, stay safe out there. Until next time. This is Mark Anthony Rossi, Strength to be Human, episode 142, The Relationship Between Creativity and Mental Illness. Until next time. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.